Welcome to Un Uninformed. Each week, Un Uninformed helps you in being connected to the world around you so you don't feel dumb around your smart friends. This week we are talking about artificial intelligence and the future of technology. I'm Sean Seavey. We're talking about what technology will look like 30 years from now. It probably contains artificial intelligence, or AI, more connectivity, and what about the future of jobs? We're talking to Kevin Kelly, who helped launch Wired magazine and was one of its executive editors. Last year, Kevin Kelly published a book which takes a look at what the world of technology might look like in the next 30 years. The book is called The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. It reached the New York Times bestseller list last year, and last month it was released in paperback. Kevin Kelly, welcome to Un Uninformed. Hey, it's a real delight to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while, and uh, with the recent publish of your paperback, um, this is really exciting. So let's talk about uh, your book. It's called The Inevitable. So in your book, you argue that, that many aspects of the future of technology are inevitable. So what parts of technology are inevitable? This inevitability is kind of a soft inevitability. It's, it's, it's along the, the lines of... Um once you invent wires and switches, you're going to invent telephones. That's inevitable. And we, and we know that because there were so many people who invented the telephone all at the same time. Wow. In fact, uh, the story is is that the patent for the telephones was by not just Alexander Graham Bell, but there was another guy who came in later that afternoon. Really? Yeah. I had no so, idea. So, so within days, people were applying for the for the patent. Uh, it, the simultaneous independent invention is the norm. Wow. Thomas Edison was the 32nd inventor of the light bulb, electric light bulb. Um, these things, when it's time for them to happen, they will happen in, inevitably, and we kind of misplace the story of history by assigning it to individuals. If, if it wasn't him, it was someone else. Everything is happening in, in multiples. And so the larger form of the telephone was inevitable, but of course, you know, the iPhone was not. The particulars are not. Electric light bulb was inevitable, but the particular version of what it looks like and what the filament was and the tungsten and the the whole system, none of that was. Those are all contingent. Those are all things that are inherently unpredictable and stochastic. And we have a lot of choice in determining them, and their, that character of, of these inventions have a huge impact on us. So there's plenty of ways in which we can decide the particulars and the specifics which are not in, inevitable. The things that are inevitable are these long-term tendencies in certain directions, and these tendencies come from the fact that these technologies are physical, that they have physical matter and chemical reactions and these drive these reoccurring patterns and we know that they recur because people independently keep inventing them so the, so there there's there's natural solutions much like uh, a four-legged animal a quadruped right. or a four-legged vehicle it's just a natural solution that's going to occur on any planet that has gravity like ours because it's a natural solution 
to the physical problem. And so these technologies also have natural solutions that they kind of gravitate to. And so that's what we're trying to identify. And for me, the way to identify them is to um, look at where these technologies are kind of running without being distorted by money, without where they're being used by kids, where they're being used by criminals or the underworld, where they're being abused by the street, where they're being used by hobbyists. It's, it's, you're looking at where kind of it wants to go when it's not being in some ways directed by officials or by, by money. And so when you look there, you can kind of see where it wants to go. That's what your book's all about. There's some forces kind of shaping where technology's going. Um, yeah, right. Right, and these are all these. There, I mentioned twelve of them, but they're really kind of twelve tributaries in a inner braided, you know, river valley. And we could slice them other ways. That's it's not really critical because they're all kind of codependent on each other. Um, but those twelve directions, I think of them as directions. They're not they're not inventions or endpoints or destinies destinations. They're kind of general tendencies. Those twelve tendencies. Um, uh, are things that we can't really stop. We can certainly form and give character to, but th- they're going to continue on because they've already been operating for at least a decade, and they will continue on for another couple of decades. I want to try a little experiment here. I kind of want to do a lightning round of the 12, and then maybe we'll focus on one or two um, as time permits. We'll talk about one of those forces you give me a a short definition and maybe an example futuristic or current how's that sound we can try it all right let's see if it works okay so number one force is becoming go so this is the idea that everything is undergoing change that we're all having to learn new things and that everything is on its way to being upgraded and improved and that there is a general drift from physical things like products to services which are intangible. So there, there, there is a, um, a, a general movement to things no longer being fixed, but always being undergoing change. Got it. How about an example? Well, things like, say, like um, photography used to be a very analog thing. It used to have um, cameras that are very heavy. You could drop it, hurt your toe. Um, and over time, a lot of that stuff was replaced by intangible computation and bits, and, and the camera could fit into your phone. Right. It's just a little small part. It was this tiny, tiny little thing that most of it had been replaced by software, which is constantly being upgraded and getting better. Over time, so while you sleep, you get in some new software, and you're, suddenly your camera is better. So it's it's always becoming yeah. something that then that it was before, and and so there, here's 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 something very simple like a camera that is always becoming better. Okay, number two, and uh, I want to spend more time on this later, but just let's get the short one: cognifying. Now, actually, before you jump into this. Uh, when I typed in cognifying, and I'm like, what does that even mean? I didn't realize that that wasn't a word yet. Did you invent this word? <laughs> Pro- yeah, mostly. I did. Uh, yeah, so, so, so cognifying is, is, is a word I coined because uh, we don't have a word in English 
to mean a verb to mean uh, to make things smarter. We don't say smartify. Smartify. <laughs> we're going to smart. So everything we're making is we're smartifying it. We're making it a little bit smarter, and we're making some things a lot smarter. And um, that's the general trend, which is an extension of evolution, which constantly was creating minds again and again. Um, so we're in the, the general trend of things are going to be made smarter and smarter and smarter, and some things will be made very smart. Um, and um, eventually we will, um, very soon, we will actually deliver that smartness on the grid like a utility, like electricity. It'll be available to everybody. It'll affect almost everything we do. Cool. And I definitely want to talk more about AI and, and things like that. Um, as things are getting smarter. Yeah, let's come back to cognifying, but for now, number three, flowing. The example of this is that um, the new oil is data. The, the, new, the new wealth is bits of information. Sometimes the information about your customers is more valuable to businesses than the customers themselves. And so there is a sense in which um, data is the new center of our culture, and we have moved, you know, from being people of the book to becoming people of the screen. And on the screen, um, unlike the book, which is fixed and monumental and static and the source of authority and authors, the screen is ever-changing. Things are flowing across. Things are moving. Things are always ephemeral. And we have to kind of uh, uh, make... Um, our world uh, truth assemble it ourselves. And that flowing of information actually permits things to be decentralized. And so the general movement from centralized things to the, the decentralized way in which we're doing things, including democracy, all rely on the fact that we have increased the avenues for information to flow to the edges and flow away from centers and flow peer to peer. And so this kind of flowing of bits is the new paradigm and we're only beginning. We're going to actually continue to flow things away from solid things to things that are liquid. Got it. Um, and, and the examples, I think, tell me if this is correct, uh, like Wikipedia, how that's always changing when a new event happens, uh, right? That's 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 one example, but I mean another example would be like um, uh, the change in say the organization of workplaces that they become more flatter. They call it flatter. There's less hierarchy. So in the old days, the way the only way you could manage an army um, was you give commands at the top, and everybody would follow those commands because there was no flow of information. Um, but now people at the bottom, the privates, have maybe more information than the generals and certainly at least as, as much information. And there's peer-to-peer -peer communication between them. And so what that means is that uh, the, 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 the organization kind of flows into a flattened state because of these new avenues of peer-to-peer um, -peer communication permit it to be much more flexible and much more liquid and, and organic and, and adaptable because you don't have to have things ever go through the top. And so part of the flows uh, is, is this idea of the flexibility enabled by having things connected without a center and just from edge to edge. 
and bottom up. And so Wikipedia is an example because it's being written from the bottom up. It's the fact that everybody has access to these flows of information. That means you don't have to have people at the top dictating it. Okay, screening. So screening is also the part of the thing, as I mentioned, we've moved from being uh, where the book and text, the scripture and the Bible, constitution, were the center of the culture and things didn't count unless they were written down and printed in black and white, which is very, very precise. And we've moved to screens where their screens are everywhere from the back of your airplane seat to the side of buildings and eventually onto clothes. And we have multiple screens in our own lives right this minute. And so um, that movement to the screens has, is meaning that, that we're moving to a, a culture where things are based on moving images. Um, and um, there are a lot of the um, uh, innovations that we invented to manipulate text and to make text useful, like we, we after we write things down, we invented the table of contents, we invented the index, all the thing, all the parts of a book, uh, annotation, footnotes, uh, hyperlinks on the web, all these things that deal with text and enable us to um, to use it and make it uh, powerful. We have not yet done for the screen and the moving image. It's really hard to kind of search into. Uh, inside a video, like you know, show me all the scenes of a uh, uh, of a pirate, you know, uh, swinging through the ropes onto a ship. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't do Not that. <laughs> but we will be able to do that. And when we and when we can annotate and say, you know, and say, um, uh, you know, mo- uh, modify all these images or, or or connect them together or hyperlink into that, when we can actually do the same things we the same Gutenberg-like things we could with the book, with moving images, we're going to recognize it as much more the center of our culture. And um, uh, that that kind of moving image that has yet to be um, improved or sophisticated in the same way that we've done with text, where we could actually um, analyze, summarize, uh, quantify, um uh, you know, make a table of content. How do we browse an image? We don't even know how to do that. Or how do we browse movies? So that's what we're in store for. That's what's happening right now. Okay, accessing. So accessing is part of this long-term uh, trend that's been happening a while and will continue, which is moving from ownership, from owning things. The 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 idea of property uh, as uh, um, as a organizing metaphor for things that we produce. Um, moving from there to um, access. So, so the idea is is that um, owning things is actually becoming a liability, a lot of responsibilities, and you get more benefits from just accessing things if you can get them on demand anytime you want, anywhere you want. And that first happened with digital, and it's now happening with physical things. If you can get something within 30 minutes or an hour, it's almost the same as instant. And the the benefits of having access to those things uh, are often outweighing the the burdens and responsibilities of owning it. So there's there's a general movement to accessing things over owning them. Okay, and it seems like I think of a lot of examples. What's at the forefront of your mind? Well, music and movies were the first to do that, streaming music. Yeah, why would you own music if you could just stream and have access to any music anytime? You don't have to upkeep it, store it, catalog it, pay, 
back it up, all that kind of stuff. You just have to get it, subscribe to it, and then give it back, so to speak, or movies and Netflix. And then there's Uber uh, on cars, which is why I own a car. If you could summon a ride whenever you needed it and would go away, that's much better than having to pay for insurance, uh, repairs, parking, etc. And this one, this just came up yesterday. I have, to, I have to bring it up. We were at a Styx concert, and they said, "Hey, we're selling our CDs." And uh, you know, the guy I went with said, uh, um, "I've got the CD on Spotify." So, like, there you go. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay. So, um, sharing. So sharing is um, a little bit kind of what we were just talking about. The, the part of this move to to access, but. Um, I, I want, I'm trying to expand it a little bit. So we think of the sharing economy, but I'm saying that sharing is really just the most elemental or generic form of, of ways to collaborate and that um, what these technologies are doing is allowing us to collaborate and work together and cooperate in levels of complexity and scales and speeds that were simply unthinkable before. So we have an example of like Wikipedia, which is an encyclopedia created by millions of people right. um, who are in very distant places in multiple languages. Um, and that's simply – you couldn't have done that before, the internet, because there was no technology that allowed that kind of collaboration. But now we are headed into a territory of billions of people. So Facebook has two billion people yeah. on, on, on the rolls, and they're collaborating in the most simplistic stupid ways but it is a type of collaboration (laughs) we're sharing gossip and cat videos but that's more participation than watching tv but imagine if you could take 100 million people and have them collaborate on something in real time that would simply be unthinkable even a decade ago and or you could take a million people as as reddit did uh, last april um for their april fool's um prank they had a hundred had a million pixels and they let people control the pixels to paint and make things at the same time they were competing against that and so there was this phenomenal community art performance piece of a million there were literally a million people collaborating and, and competing in 72 hours wow. and um that's just a hint of what we can do with 100 million people or 10 million people collaborating together. And that's the opportunity that we have with sharing. So we have these really elementary examples of what is possible. Okay, filtering. Filtering is uh, the general trend that we have produced so many things and we're producing so many more of them that it's simply impossible for our own limited attention, which is the only scarcity that we have, to 24 hours and the day that each individual has and no technology can amplify. And so we have to, we have to invent all these levels of technology to um, help us navigate through this. And the trend is that there's not, it's not going to get simpler. We can't, (laughs) we can't eliminate those filters. We can't, can't go naked and decide that you don't want them. We only, and each of these filters brings problems and the problems we've seen recently are like fake news and right. alternative facts but they are we're not going to solve those by taking away the filters we can only add more levels of filters which will have more problems but that is 
the general trend is more and more filters that have to be compensated with yet other layers. And so we have these ecosystems blooming of ways to help us navigate through this ever-expanding uh, possibility cloud and making choices. And so um, we can't retreat. It's like tracking. There are going to only be more of it. We can only civilize this kind of filtering. <laughs> you have to have to keep the monster in control. Right. Remixing. Remixing is um, the fundamental fact that, that most everything, there's very, very truly new things made. Most stuff that we're making, most creations are uh, recombining things that exist already. And we can take the fundamental elements and recombine them into comp compounds, or you can take compounds and re-unbundle them and remix them. And uh, a perfect example of this is my book, which is uh, mostly, except for a word like cognifying, I have <laughs> taken existing words found in a dictionary and remixed them, rebundled them, made a new compound out of the same existing words. And so um, that's what business is doing and what the digital world has allowed to do is, is made it much more fungible and easier and easier to unbundle things and remix them. And it keeps creating new genres. It keeps creating uh, this ability to, to remix. Um, it plays a little bit of havoc in our idea of property. But what we're getting out of this is that there is this um, constant remixing. And once somebody invents something, it becomes very easy to unbundle it and recombine it into something else and that that's that's the new power that we all have and that's also going to be a source of a lot of the wealth and innovation all right interacting interacting from the very beginning we keep making more ways to interact with our technology um and uh you know we have uh, gesture uh interaction with computers we can kind of see that in the minority report in iron man where they have the uh, Tom Cruise character is conducting data sets with his arms and music and fingers. We have the new you know, conversational interface of talking to it, but the ultimate way that we interact is going to be by climbing into the computer itself, and that we call virtual reality, where you actually plunge yourself and surround yourself by the computer, and, and uh, every one of our actions and micro-expressions and hesitations and everything about it or is being captured and projected into an avatar. And so this becomes the ultimate way to interact with our computers by um, having them surround us. And so virtual reality is sort of like the, the ultimate interaction device. Now, uh, just to throw this in, if, if I'm not mistaken, you helped with Minority Report in yes. consulting, right? Yes, yes. So I was part of a group that was hired by Spielberg for a weekend to try and help him world build the, the world of 2050. And that was one of the things we talked about um, was in the future, um, people would be interacting with their computers with their, not just with their fingertips, but with their entire bodies and whole gestures. And um, so we were imagining that, that interface as, as being uh, something almost like conducting music. Tracking. So tracking is something else that Tanelli wants to do. You, it's like he wants to copy things on the internet. If the internet's the biggest copy machine in the world, and if it can be copied and touch the internet, it will be copied because it wants to copy. You can't stop the copying. The internet also wants to track stuff. All these devices, cameras, microphones, GPS, all this stuff is inherently 
propelling the internet to, to track more and more and more in 30 years much more of a life will be tracked. VR is inherently a surveillance state that tracks everything that we do. So tracking is going to be more about, because more and more and more of our lives are tracked. We can't stop it, but we can try and civilize the tracking. We can try and make it work for us. And um, I, while tracking is inevitable, I propose something that's not inevitable, which is covalence, which means that we basically... We watch who watches us. We track who tracks us. We make it two-way. We demand full benefits and accountability for anything. And if we have a covalent stance, then we can actually domesticate tracking and make it something that we're comfortable with. Questioning. In the future, even right now, if you want to answer, you ask a machine. Uh, I, I I don't even try to remember how to spell things. I just ask Google. Yep. Um, so uh, answers are becoming cheaper and cheaper to the point where really, really good answers will be free. And in that world of abundant answers, the thing that becomes scarce are good questions. Mm-hmm. And that actually turns out to be something that humans are pretty good at and better than, than AIs at right now. AIs are really lousy at asking questions. At the same time, Technology is conspiring to increase the uncertainty in the world. It's inspire. It, it, it kind of moves to increasing ignorance and questions faster than our knowledge. And so we're headed into a world where really to navigate through this exploding world of, 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 of uncertainty, we have to use questions and explorations as a way to cut through it. So you'll be paid eventually by how well you're able to ask questions. And lastly on the list of 12 is beginning. Right. So the last one is beginning and it's a little bit of um, a cheat because besides the fact that I emphasize that you are not late, none of us are late, that all this stuff is just happening, that this is the best time in the world ever to make something because there's never been a better time where the tools have been cheaper the market and audience potential audience bigger where the end the barriers to entry to anything are lower where um it doesn't really matter where you live and at the same time as we look to the future um it's very clear that all these things that are coming along the virtual realities the artificial intelligences that there are no experts we don't know what they are we don't know how they work compared to what we know in 30 years. And there are so many easy, low-hanging fruit that will be harvested by some of the pioneers that um, there's really no better time in the history of the future to even begin than right now. People will look back 30 years from now and say, oh my gosh, I wish I could have been working and starting at that time. This all is just beginning right now. You have a great chance as anybody else to become the AI expert. What I think is that one of the biggest uh, opportunities even bigger than the opportunity of artificial intelligence, even bigger than the opportunity of virtual reality is this coming world where we're making and knitting ourselves into this planetary something or other. It's we're connecting all the, you know, 5 billion adults in the, on the planet. And we all have interconnected smartphones and we'll have, you know, uh, all the devices, all the trillions of devices are all connected together in one machine, and then we'll have all the AIs connected, and then we'll have this 
mammoth planetary scale superorganism or something or other that we don't even have a word for. And this thing will be this huge opportunity of collaborating at the planetary scale and it will demand, you know, new styles of governance and it will present opportunities uh, of a, a scale and speed that we have never seen before in this planet. And that's the true beginning, which is just being born now and it'll be the next big thing for centuries to come because we're never going to undo it. It's just going to keep adding to this in this scale and complexity. And this opportunity is just beginning and we're at, at its birth. And if, if you want something big, this is it. And, and, and this is exciting. It's good to hear good news about this because there's a lot of uh, doomsdayers about AI and things like that. And I kind of want to jump into AI right now. And I, I asked some questions on Facebook and I got some replies. One was from Zach Stuckey and he said, what are the chances of artificial intelligence replacing CEOs with so much optimization innovation coming down the pipe? What are the best choices people can make to ensure they aren't left in the dust with unemployable skills? So let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of questions rolled into that one question. So let me start right. with CEOs being replaced. I, I think it's very far away that there'll be a CEO replaced with an AI, but I think it's very plausible within our lifetimes that you'd see CEOs working with a, a team, a partner, a centaur of AI, of CEO plus AI yeah. as, a, as a centaur, as a, as a team. They're kind and of centaur, a, that, that's referring to... Um, centaur is, a, well, of course, a mythical half horse half human being but the, it was it was the idea in ai was coined by gary kasparov the chess champion who lost to deep blue and um complained that it was unfair because the supercomputer had access to this database of every single chess move that had ever been played uh -huh. and then if he had had access to the same database he would have won so why can't he why couldn't he play with access to the database with with an ai and so he made a new chess league where you could play as an AI, as a centaur, a team of AI plus human, or just as a superhuman, and um, and he called that that team or the, the the unit of a human plus AI. He called that a centaur. And what's interesting is the best chess player on the planet today is not an AI. Right. It's not a human. It's a centaur. It's a human plus AIs. And so, um, and, and and so we're seeing that that you know so the, so the best. CEO in the future is not going to be an AI. It's not going to be a human. It's going to be the centaur wow. of the human plus AI. So, so, so that's the general. I think that's a general trend. Yeah. Is that uh, yes, a lot of your tasks are routine and meticulous and will be uh, done better by the efficiency of a bot. But that leaves a lot of the inefficient tasks that, you, that we have of being creative and innovative which are inherently inefficient um to the human and so um what we want to use the ai for is is in a center center relationship where we have complementary skills and intelligences 
again, these AIs don't think like humans. They yeah. think differently. That's their benefit. And so there are there, the, the team of an AI plus human is smarter than an AI and smarter than a human in that sense, or I should say more powerful. And so um, that's going to be true, I think, even at the lower levels where um, – you know, you may be paid by how well you work with a- AIs. There will be AI whisperers who may, <laughs> won't who won't have college degrees, really? but they will just have some intuitive sense of how AIs work. It's kind of like working with an animal, it's an, or an alien being. You know, yeah. they're they're a different kind of intelligence, and they'll you know the, the, maybe they're on the spectrum, and they just have some fa- affinity for this way of thinking. Uh, and they'll be paid very well because they have an intuitive sense of how an AI works. And then how about the second part of the question about unemployment? Uh, what What's job outlook going to be like? Uh, there will be more jobs than ever before. There will be more things to do. These technologies will help us to invent things that we didn't even know we wanted. And in 20 years from now, we can't imagine living without. And... Um, there'll be a whole slew of people trying to service that. Um, a lot of these jobs will sound entirely silly to us right now. They'll be as silly as us going back to the farmers 150 years ago, telling them, you know, 70% of the Americans were farmers, telling them, you know, there's only 1% of you are going to be around. The rest of you are going to be doing, you're going to be web designers. <laughs> you're, going to, you're going to be social media strategists. You're going to be mortgage brokers, and, and the, the, that'll just be completely ridiculous to them. It's like that doesn't even make any sense. And the jobs that are coming are going to be as equally ridiculous to us now. But there'll be plenty of things for us to do. So finally, what, what's your overall outlook on the future? I'm optimistic, hugely optimistic. Uh, I think... Uh, we're headed into a, a period when we will continue to bring more of the really lowest, poorest people on the planet into the middle class. I think there'll be more people in the middle class who are going to expand their possibilities and reach their potential because the more technologies we invent, the more chance there is that we invent the perfect thing for that individual who is looking for that technology to unleash and express their genius. The, you know, the more technologies we have, the more potentials we have for Einstein's and Mozart's and others to use their gifts. And um, I think I'm very positive that even though we'll invent whole new problems through AI and VR and tracking, that the solutions to those problems are yet more and better technologies. That in the end, there's a net gain as there has been for 200 years, uh, there's an incremental creep to, to betterment um, and that uh, the world won't be perfect, but it will be a little tiny bit better than it is today. I, I'm glad that I feel a lot better than I, than I thought I would. Um, this, most AI conversations um, kind of bring me down into a, a slump of depression. Now, we'll have to follow up with you um, in year uh, 2046. <laughs> And really see, you know, if, if you've nailed it on the head. Yeah, I, I, I will undoubtedly be mostly wrong about everything. <laughs> um, 
but the 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 reason to try and talk about the future is really to try and to predict the present is really a way of illuminating what's happening right now. Kevin Kelly, thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure and delight and honor. Thank you for having me, and I wish the best for all of you and your endeavors. That was Kevin Kelly, who just released the paperback edition of the book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. For more of Kevin Kelly, visit his website, kk.org, where you can check out cool stuff like his blog called Cool Tools, which uh, has a daily recommendation for the best and cheapest tools out there. And the website, of course, provides the links to purchase The Inevitable, which just had its paperback release on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. I purchased a, a copy of the book, and, and while it, it reads like a novel, it, it's also a good uh, reference companion, you know, if you want to look up different aspects of the technological future. Which brings me to something else I want to talk about. On the day of the interview, I asked people on Facebook what questions they had on the future of technology, and I was pleasantly surprised on all the responses I got. We were unable to answer all of your questions in the limited time I had with my interview with Kevin Kelly, but I have his book right here in front of me to answer some of the other questions we got. So let's give a stab at it. So Kyle Pierce asks, With automatic driving cars already in existence, when does Kevin Kelly predict that automatic cars will take over on a wide scale? In other words, how many more years do I have to wait for my car to drive me everywhere? Here's what it says in the book. An automobile today is really a computer on wheels. The rolling computer is about to be connected and become an internet car. The connected car will also become the new office. If you're not driving on your private space, you will enter work or play in it. I predict, and here's, here's the real answer here, I predict that by 2025, the bandwidth to a high-end driverless car will exceed the bandwidth into your home. There you have it. Tyler Higginson asked, what services is blockchain tech likely to penetrate? Now, I didn't know what blockchain was before I read this book, but, the, but in this book, he spends a couple pages on this exact thing, blockchain. The Bitcoin is an example of blockchain. It means that instead of money going through a central organization such as a federal bank, it goes peer-to-peer. -peer. Here's how he describes it. He says, When I send you one US dollar via a credit card or PayPal account, a central bank has to verify that transaction. At the very least, it must confirm I had a dollar to send you. When I send you one Bitcoin, no central intermediary is involved. Our transaction is posted in a public ledger called a blockchain. And then he goes on to talk about the future of blockchain. So check this out. This is what it says. A number of startups and venture capitalists are dreaming up ways to use blockchain technology as a general purpose trust mechanism beyond money. For transactions that require a high degree of trust between strangers, such as real estate and mortgage contracts, this validation was previously provided by a professional broker. But instead of paying a traditional title company a lot of money to verify a complex transaction such as a house sale, an online peer-to-peer -peer blockchain system can execute the exchange for much less costs, or maybe free, here's the crux right here, thereby disrupting many industries that rely on brokers. Whether Bitcoin itself succeeds 
It's blockchain innovation, which can generate extremely high levels of trust among strangers, will further decentralize institutions and industries. So that's his answer on how disruptive blockchain will be and what tech it will penetrate. TJ Godfrey asks, how will the benefits of technology be distributed? For example, technology has allowed us to grow enough food to feed everyone in the world, but people still starve because food isn't equally distributed. Will the benefits of technology in the future make everyone better off or just select groups? So Kelly talks about something called digital socialism. Here's what how he describes how technology will make a level playing field for all classes of people. He says it's not like your normal socialism. He says, unlike those older strains of red flag socialism, this new digital socialism runs over a borderless internet via network communications generating intangible services throughout a tightly integrated global economy. So the question is, how does this help, say, poor people? How does it not just benefit one class of people, not the the richest people? Here's what it says in the book. We're applying digital socialism to a growing list of desires and occasionally to problems that the free market couldn't solve to see if it works. So far, the results have been startling. We had successes in using collaborative technology and bringing healthcare to the poorest, developing free college textbooks, and funding drugs for uncommon diseases. At nearly every turn, the power of sharing, cooperation, collaboration, openness, free pricing, and transparency has proven to be more practical than we capitalists thought possible. Every time we try it, we find that the power of the sharing is bigger than we imagined. So he kind of says a sharing economy is what will bring everybody on a level playing field. Now, there's a couple of specific questions that that we got on Facebook that I'm sure Kevin Kelly has something to say about, but I don't recall him talking about it in the book. Um, Walter Donaldson asks about flying cars, and uh, Christina Levitt asks about solar-powered roadways, which I actually didn't know was a thing. Um, maybe it's in the future, but I couldn't find it in the book. Anyway, thank you, all of you, for your questions. And if you continue to have questions, message me through the Un- Uninformed Facebook page or Twitter or any forms of social media. Or better yet, buy the book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode insightful, let your friends know and share the post for the episode on social media, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. The theme music on this show is provided with permission by D.D. Dumbo. I'm Sean Seavey, and you've been listening to Un-Uninformed. Thanks, everybody.